Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And Rebecca Ford. Hello. David Canfield is off on his Thanksgiving travel, as will we all soon. It's Thanksgiving week here in the United States, which will make it a short week for Hollywood, although a dramatic one, uh, given the news that broke on Sunday night that Bob Iger is coming back to Disney. Uh, Natalie Jarvie is going to swoop in later on to give me the rundown on all of that drama. Um, But we have other more uh, Oscar-adjacent, maybe not drama to talk about. Rebecca, you'll have to let us know what went down in the ballroom at the Governor's Awards on Saturday night. Um, it looked like a blast. It looked like a real return to form. Um, did you have as much fun as I hope you did? It really was really fun. I think um, what what I've decided is it's because it's so early in the season. So everyone was there who's in the awards race this year. And everyone still is optimistic, <laughs> which is what made it really fun. And, you know, it's just one of those events that you're watching for people who who have deserved this sort of attention uh, throughout their careers and maybe for some of them haven't gotten it. So they give really heartfelt speeches and it's not televised so they can really kind of open up and, and share, which quite a few of them did. So it's a it's a really special event. Yeah, of the speeches, so, you know, you have your write-up, you talked about Eugene Policy's speech seemed to really stand out. I know Michael J. Fox had a real, like, cheering crowd there with him. Um, who else really stood out speech-wise? I think Michael J. Fox really set the tone for the evening. He was the first um, award given out. And uh, he is so funny and open about um, Parkinson's and, you know, made jokes about when he took the stage and everyone was uh, there was a standing ovation for him. uh, He said, you know, stop it. You're making me shake. And he just like (laughs) made everyone in the room feel so comfortable and and said some, you know, really thoughtful things about his journey. And I think that just really set the tone. You know, I've been to quite a few of these. And and I, I would say this was one where the speeches all just felt really authentic in a way that you don't always see at this event. Also, um, Eugene Policy being introduced by Viola Davis, just looking unbelievably great. Like, I'm sure many people looked great. But looking through the Getty photos, man, what a fantastic dress she had. Like, who wouldn't want that introduction? Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I do wonder if, you know, people in the general audience may not know her as well as the other um, honorees, but you really got the significance of the barriers she broke. I mean, she was sitting next to Viola and uh, Jordan Peele and, you know, Gina Prince-Bythewood was in the audience as well. And they all really touched on how she, you know, opened doors for future generations. And I, it felt really, really significant. So that she was the last award of the night. And I think it was just really um, a great way to end that night, too. Yeah, she was the first black woman to direct a film for a Hollywood studio, right? Yes. Yeah. And she talked about how hard, you know, it was to continue making films and 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 she sort of took a break and turned to mentorship for a long time. But she basically announced that she's ready to come back and make more movies. So I'm like super excited to see that as well. So I think to sort of end on that note made it just such a sweet night. Whereas Peter Weir there was just like, no, I'm good. I'm going back to Australia. (laughs) He's like, nice to see you and goodbye. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love that Ed Harris and Amy Madigan were at his table, like in terms of like the, you know, blast in the past from his previous movies that really thrilled me. Yeah, I think that's what's cool about this night is, you know, there's some people who are there to, to only support the honorees and have nothing to do with this season. And it's just like so cool to see some of those faces pop up that we don't um, expect to see the rest of the season. But then to have the room like so packed with Oscar hopefuls, which it wasn't last year because it was delayed and sort of out of the voting period. Um, it just felt like this sort of crazy return that... Just just made me realize we're back. Everything is, is back and maybe bigger than it's been in the last few years, of course. Was anyone moving through the crowd, you know, any of the current contenders with like a special um, bravado or like, it, you know, who, who is making the most kind of show of themselves, I guess? I know. I'm always looking for that, right? But the, honestly, this room was so packed, it was hard to tell. I mean, the uh -huh. A24 tables were getting a lot of attention, but you had like... You know, the whole everything everywhere all at once. You know, Michelle was there. The directors were there. Stephanie was there. So Key was there. So you you saw that table getting a lot of attention, which is something I feel like we've been expecting of this season. We discuss that every week. Like, where are they yeah. now? They're yeah. Getting... <laughs> They're everywhere at once. And, um, I, you know, I talked to Michelle and Stephanie for a little bit. And it's just it's just so true. They're just like, we like talking about this movie. Like, this doesn't feel like work, which I think is pretty amazing since they've been talking about it since March. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, of course, um, Brendan Fraser was there and um, at his table was also Jeremy Pope for the inspection. And like, you just had these cool mixes at the tables, even though they were divided by studios um, that really were interesting. Jeremy Pope seems to know everyone. Like everywhere I looked, he was talking to, you know, Janelle Monet or um, Paul Mescal. Like he just seems to know everyone, uh, which I didn't know about him but there was a any time there was a break in the speeches people were just like jumping up and working the room so there was definitely a lot of that Paul Mescal someone else who I feel like just keeps popping up over and over again like seems to have run yeah. the circuit yeah he also I I, I do want to say I saw a moment where Paul Mescal Andrew Scott and Colin Farrell were all talking in a group and I like don't know how the world didn't implode oh in that moment <laughs> All of, all of Britain fell to its knees. <laughs> yeah. So it was it was a lot of that, a lot of sort of unexpected combinations that you know seem really cool. Katie, did you implode watching Cher give an award to Diane Warren? Oh my God, I'm so happy for Diane Warren. Yeah, we didn't talk about her speech either, or the photos that she commissioned that uh, came out afterwards of her. She like posed like a morning after of her like laying in bed with her Oscar, which I just. I love her so much. What a what a triumph for this woman who has done so much for songwriting and hasn't won an Oscar. And she like went up early, right? She, I think Cher was introducing her and she kind of, Diane Warren jumped the queue or something. <laughs> I, and think, so, I think that might have been a Cher issue because oh, everyone, Cher else, issue. Okay. everyone else gave their intros before the little like video montages. And Cher came up and was like, here's the video montage. And we're like, is Cher not giving a speech? What's <laughs> happening? So... Um, I don't know who's, who's fault, but it turned out to be really cute to have them sort of next to each other while Cher talked about her. Yeah. What happens to the energy in the room when you've got all these like famous awards contenders, but then Cher is there? Like, does she suck up all the energy out of the room? She really does. Like I, everyone around me was just like, she looks amazing. <laughs> she really does. <laughs> Really the, Rebecca, you and I were texting over the weekend that like there are, there are some people who you catch up to with these things and they're just like, what is this? Like I'm exhausted <laughs> already, and there are six months left to go before the Oscars. And was there, was that a slight uh, vibe along with the excitement? I feel like I heard those complaints 
outside of this event. Like I did a panel with a director on Friday night and this person was saying, am I running a political campaign? Like, I feel like I'm running for president. This has been so crazy. And I tried to sort of explain what is happening because it was this person's first time in the race. But at the event, everyone was, you know, had their best foot forward, I would say. And there were no complaints. Yeah. I mean, that's how the Oscars always feel, right? Like, we're all so sick of it by the time we get to the Oscars. And then you you get on the night and you're like, oh, wow. Like, you get the shivers when the actual event happens. I feel like the Governor's Awards have a lot of that sheen as well. Totally. Yeah. Um, Rebecca, you took a picture uh, from your seat of Taylor Russell, the star of Bones and All, who had a really incredible sculptural pair of earrings that looked like they must have weighed like five pounds. Um, that's why movie stars are different from us, because they can handle wearing things like that. Um, but Bones and All is out now. It, I, I got the box office pulled up. It opened on five screens. So it's like the Fablemans, where it's playing just a tiny number of theaters. And I think they're both going wide over Thanksgiving weekend. We'll get there shortly. Um, but also, she said, was out in theaters this weekend, opening a good bit more widely on 2,000 screens. And there was kind of a weird amount of... Um, gleeful trade reporting on how poorly it did. It made $2.2 million, which is, you know, it's money, but, you know, the menu far outperformed it over the weekend. Um, Rebecca, you and I have both been fans of She Said. You saw it really early and kind of did a preview for us. Um, I was really surprised by how much people were willing to be like, well, nobody wants to see the journalism movie. It's very frustrating. I I wonder if people aren't aware of what this movie is, because... I'm not sure if it's a marketing issue or what, but, you know, it's such a, like, I, I easily compare it to Spotlight. It's it's such a thrilling movie about journalism and, and sort of the women who fought against, you know, this terrible monster. And I worry people maybe thought it was going to be a hard watch, which obviously a lot of Oscar season mo- movies are, um, that made them feel bad, but that's not what it is at all. But I, I don't know how to explain sort of what you're describing, which I agree with, is this like excitement to say how much it bombed that seems to be the language that's being used on social media and in the reporting. I don't know what to make of that. I think people are sometimes overly eager, even though they're inside the bubble, to point at the bubble. You know, I, I think the problem, not in the filmmaking of She Said, but in the marketing was sort of like, and maybe there's a little bit in the movie where it's like, I think you need a little bit more about who this horrible guy is. Mm. Um, because like, we're also familiar with this story and his legacy and whatever. But I think a lot of people aren't. And maybe the marketing needed a little bit more guidance and bringing audiences toward it and saying, this is what this is about. Um, and I think that maybe for these people who seem to be, you know, dancing on its grave or whatever, that there's some sort of like see see like you guys all are are live in an echo chamber. I don't, of course. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes, maybe I'm inside it too. But like, you know, I think it's a bit of that. Like the the failure she said is not. Oh, I'm, I'm, they, they don't mean it as a referendum on like the matters of me too or, or what happened to Weinstein or anything like that. M- more just like, well, you know, see, real America doesn't care about you know snooty New York Times journalists and Hollywood people, you know, um, even though the people saying that are Hollywood journalists. But I just feel like Tar didn't have the same tone to its headlines and it didn't do exceptionally well. I think it was sort of soft in its opening as well. So, or even Armageddon time, I think. I just feel like, I don't know if it's because this is like the third or fourth sort of, you know, prestige movie that's had trouble at the box office that it's getting this narrative, but... Yeah, it does seem a little unfair. 
Yeah, I mean, the if you go look through the box office, like Triangle Sadness has not cleared $4 million. Tar is just under $5 million. Um, you know, Fableman's and Bones and all I said are basically in four and five theaters, so we don't know how that's going yet. Uh, After Sun is also, you know, s- still chugging along under a million dollars. Um, like, there are some hits out there. Like, The Menu did pretty well. Um Banshees of Sharon has cost $7 million, which is pretty good for a movie of that size. Mm-hmm. And like the real thing is that like it's the long game. Like These movies make, make money in February if you can keep them in theaters that long. And I know it's different now than like in the 80s when... You know, you could the best picture winner would become number one at the box office again. Um, you know, things the windows are smaller, like you can watch Tar at home now. Um, but the idea of like looking for hits among your kind of more heavy duty Oscar contenders, it just feels like not the point and also not the time to to make that call. Yeah, I mean, maybe not. I mean, my my parents watched Tar, I believe, like th- th- this past weekend, and my mom was texting me about it, and she said, "Well, yeah, it's on demand now," and I was like. My mom is a pretty devoted moviegoer, and I was like, you didn't even go out to see this yeah. movie in theaters? You yeah. know? Um, I just think, unfortunately, we're still in that, like, COVID-era sort of inertia phase, you know? Like, more people are going out for things, sure, absolutely, anecdotally, in cities or whatever. Like, But I think I think it's a slower thing. I mean, those num- all of those box office numbers, she said included, certainly, are disappointing and, and make me worried about, like, the state of things, but... Um, you know, then again, a friend of mine um, went to see Bones and all, I guess one of the five theaters where it's playing. Um, and it was, this was in New York City. And um, it was so packed that people were sitting on the stairs. Um, <laughs> That's not, definitely not legal. They're not supposed to do oh, that. Oh, mercy, no. Um, and yet, I mean, of course, those were like Timmy stands um, yeah. who probably are not representative of like the broader movie going public, but. <laughs> I kind of feel like with She Said, with Tar, but the Tar marketing was really, you know, obscure and sort of didn't really actually get at what the movie was. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know the, the Tar marketing, though. Like, I felt like the mystery was such a power move. But Well, we liked it because we kind of knew, you know, like... I, I, and I we think were going to see it, yeah. Right. I, mean. I, I think, you know, going back to a discussion we had a year ago about West Side Story, and this was, you know, a, a colleague of, of, of mine, of ours, um, who was like, who doesn't, who wasn't really familiar with West Side Story, he was like, I didn't know what that was, you know? And I think that we're, there's a little bit of insular thinking in how these movies are sold um, mm. to, to the public um, that maybe needs to be shaken up because um, I, I just think there's a lot of people who don't even know these movies are out. I also think that it's, you know, it's like, it's COVID, but it's also a decade plus of us being trained to think that serious adult stories are on television um, with the whole prestige right. TV era. Um that your parents, you think of something, they're like, oh, well, I'm going to watch uh, Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon at home. Why wouldn't I watch Tar at home? It's kind of all the like stuff that's for grownups and the movie theaters are for superheroes. And obviously there's exceptions all the time. Ticket to Paradise is still doing really well. Elvis made a ton of money earlier this year. Um, but I think our expectations have, have shifted in a way um, that, you know, Hollywood made their bed. So <laughs> this might be them lying in it. Maybe Clooney and Roberts should have played Tui and Cantor. I, 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 don't, I, I don't know. You know, I still haven't seen Ticket to Paradise, and I'm glad it's hanging in there. Like, I'll just find a, a weekday afternoon because it'll stay in theaters forever. Um, I'll, I'll buy that ticket. You should somehow at home simulate being on a plane and watching the movie. You know, because <laughs> that's where most people will watch that movie, I think, ultimately. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, try to make that at home. Mm. 
Well, while we're talking about Hollywood and money and streaming services, this is probably a good time to check in with Natalie Jarvie, who is going to help us figure out the whole craziness at Disney with Bob Iger coming back and uh, ousting Bob Chapek, the guy who was supposed to succeed him. So let's hear from Natalie. So as promised, here I am with Vanity Fair's Hollywood correspondent, Natalie Jarvie. Uh, Natalie, thank you for coming to explain Hollywood to me. Of course. Happy to be here. <laughs> um, so I've just been talking with Richard and Rebecca about, um, you know, streaming and who goes to movies and, you know, the existential crisis of Hollywood, all of which kind of seems like it led to Sunday night's really shocking announcement that Bob Iger was going to come back to Disney. Um, you are someone who has really clued in with the movements of, you know, C-suite's executives in Hollywood, but I assume you were also totally shocked by this. Absolutely shocked. I don't know anyone who covers this town who was expecting that news on Sunday night. I think everyone was aware that Bob Chapek was on thin ice, but yeah. it seemed unlikely that if someone was going to come in to replace him, that it would be the man that he replaced. <laughs> well, yeah, I think he's, even as someone like me who kind of gets this all a little, little bit secondhand, there was definitely a sense that like Bob Iger still had this sterling reputation as the, the king of Disney and Bob Chapek was really struggling to fill his shoes for such a long time now. I mean, we all remember him like going to war with Scarlett Johansson and the Florida stuff. Um, but I hadn't really clocked the earnings call in early November that uh, about how much money Disney had lost. And I, I've seen some speculation that that was really when the gears started turning for his ouster. Yeah, I mean, so something interesting has happened since Bob Iger stepped down as CEO, which is that investors have um, gone from being okay with streaming losses as long as a, a streaming service was adding subscribers to now being suddenly very concerned about streaming losses. And so yeah. it was concerning to those investors when uh, Bob Chapek got on the call and said that there was a $1.5 billion loss for the streaming division, which includes Disney Plus and Hulu and ESPN Plus. That was a big number. And uh, some people felt that he maybe didn't treat it with the seriousness that was was needed and, um, you know, seemed a little bit um, kind of jovial almost on the call. And yeah, that that's when, when really, I think it became clear that, oh, maybe, maybe he's not the right person to be leading this company uh, going forward. Well, and this is all connected to what we've been seeing earlier this year with Netflix, say, the idea that, like, you can't just pour money into a streaming service forever and never have it make money, that eventually something has to happen, which feels very obvious to me, but seems to have been uh, news for for Hollywood and Wall Street in 2022. It is, <laughs> which is a bit surprising. Um, you know, but Netflix really kind of set the expectation early with investors that, you know, listen, streaming is an investment and we're not going to be, you know, making a ton of money at first, but don't worry, we're growing, we're adding subscribers, we're building. And that worked for a time. And and then, you know, Netflix had a, a couple of bad quarters where they started to lose subscribers and and everyone said, wait a second, wait, why are we why are we letting this company you know, kind of continue to rest on the subscriber numbers that, you know, have gotten them to this point. And yeah, the trickle down effect is that now every company in Hollywood is having to reevaluate whether streaming at all costs is really the the right strategy as they, you know, attempt to take on Netflix and build these direct to consumer products. Was it just the streaming thing for JPEG? Like what what were the other things that made him really it seemingly just so unpopular? Like of course now everyone's lining up to kick him, but it, it did seem like he'd had a number of strategic errors not just putting too much money into Disney Plus. 
to be fair to Chapek, he took over as CEO <laughs> not even a month before the pandemic. That is a really tough, almost insurmountable job. Uh, you know, every aspect of, of Disney's business, almost except for streaming, was shut down. You know, they they couldn't open their theme parks. They couldn't take people out on Disney cruises. They couldn't get people into movie theaters. That was a, a tough place for him to start. And, you know, I, I don't know that any business handled it incredibly well. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, he also had some very public missteps. Uh, you mentioned Scarlett Johansson. You know, the way that he handled um, her her lawsuit w- was was tough and, and not considered very creative friendly and in a town that – you know, is, is run on creator relationships and talent relationships, uh, you know, that, that was a big misstep. He also tried not to take a stand on Florida's don't say gay bill, and that backfired on him as well. And then when he did take a stand, he got into a very public tussle with uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, so it, it just felt like he couldn't win. And he was, he, he was very reactionary as a leader. And, um, I think many people would argue that in order to be a successful CEO of a major media conglomerate like Disney, you have to be uh, less reactionary and, and, you know, be willing to kind of really, you know, make some big, bold moves. Now, I'm going to ask you an unfair question, but this is the first thing I thought when I saw the Chapek was out. Does this mean Ron DeSantis gets to claim victory now that he's gone after that don't say gay mess? Oh, man, it's been a it's a unfortunate been a good month for Ron DeSantis. <laughs> this is not what I want to hear, you know? I know. I know. I mean, it was interesting seeing this coming the weekend that Disney had the number one movie at the box office in Wakanda Forever, but also had Disenchanted um, debuting on Disney+. Plus. Um, you know, not long after Hocus Pocus 2 shows up on Disney+, Plus and does really big numbers in a way that suggests maybe it should have gone into theaters. So do those feel like the kind of things that, as moviegoers or for viewers, that we might notice as a change under Iger? Is like, is that a Chapek thing that they'll move away from? All these, like, uh, you know, huge movies going straight to Disney+. Plus. Well, you have to remember that Disney Plus was really Iger's baby. It was his vision, and and he made it the number one priority within the company. Um, so I don't think Iger will be anti-streaming by any means, uh, but certainly he will have to look at the environment for theatrical releases right now and make decisions about the right place to put each of his movies. So as someone who doesn't work for Disney and is not like a super fan going to the parks all the time. Why else should I care who is in charge of Disney? I, I wonder this often with the the movements of CEOs because like I'm never going to be as rich as Bob Iger. But wh- how else does this affect me or just anyone else who kind of cares about Hollywood in general? Well, Disney is is one of the largest and most um, successful companies in Hollywood. So. Where Disney goes, often others follow. Uh, you know, they were one of the first out of the gate with Disney Plus, and then HBO Max and Peacock followed not long after. Bob Iger is also, you know, a real you know leader in Hollywood. He's a rare executive that you don't see that often anymore, and. Um, there are a lot of big problems that Hollywood is going to have to tackle in these next few years. And I would expect to see Bob Iger really, you know, kind of taking the lead in terms of, um, you know, what should happen. I mean, there's the potential for a writer's strike uh, next spring, uh, certainly continued concerns about a recession and what that might do, uh, you know, at, for companies that rely on people, you know, going to theaters, going to theme parks. Um, and and there's a lot of people who expect that there will be more consolidation and, uh, you know, that all of the companies 
that currently exist across Hollywood won't be able to go it alone. And I would look to Disney to be one of the companies that decides to, you know, get into the M&A space. Uh, they did it with Fox and the Fox acquisition. They've done it with Pixar and Marvel. And, uh, you know, so I think Bob Iger can really set the tone for, for where Hollywood goes. And, um, that's, that's why it matters that he's back, yeah. uh, because he was kind of a leader without a home, uh, up until, uh, last night. So is this the kind of thing where, like, even if you're at a rival studio, you kind of welcome his return just as a, as a sign of stability for the industry as a whole? Potentially. You may also uh, be a little bit worried about what it means. Um, <laughs> about him acquiring you? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you saw uh, Reed Hastings' tweet, uh, but it was, ugh, I thought, you know, Iger would run for president. Uh, he's amazing. If you're Reed Hastings, <laughs> you know Disney's going to be your biggest competition. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just keep thinking about the stakes of what Disney decides to do. Like, it owns so much of the entertainment industry. And, you know, this podcast is technically an Oscars podcast, and you don't think of Disney and Oscars as being synonymous, but they own Searchlight. Like, it just it trickles down to everything. Um, so I feel like just rooting for their survival feels important for all of us, no matter how you feel about Disney as a, as a corporation as a whole. I mean, absolutely. Uh, Disney makes uh, movies and TV shows that are beloved, um, and... The success of Disney says a lot about the overall health of, of the whole industry. Uh, so uh, I would be surprised if anyone was rooting for Disney to fail. Um, you know, that, that would be uh, a sign of some real problems. Uh, yeah, some, some, something's gone terribly wrong <laughs> if that's mm -hmm. what happens. Um, so what else? Do you want to make any predictions about what we'll see? I mean, it's almost the holidays. So like Hollywood famously doesn't isn't that busy this time of year. Like, or is it going to be a while before we see uh, the results of Bob Iger's return? Well, the holidays can certainly be quiet. I would also note that uh, that is when uh, Bob Iger uh, first enacted his uh, big plan to acquire Fox. So, um, oh my you know, God, he's not letting the holidays stop him from from doing some business. So, you know, he's he's just getting back into the CEO chair. It probably will take him a little bit of time, but he also has been you know, clearly keeping an eye on what Bob Chapek was up to at Disney. And um, I would expect to see him rethink a number of decisions, certainly uh, the organizational structure of Disney, um, you know, certainly uh, some of the plans for some of the TV shows and movies that are coming. Um, yeah, I had a friend suggest that getting some Star Wars in development might be a very active priority. Yes, yes. And and Bob Iger is really a very creative-minded exec. He likes to get his hands dirty and, and get involved with the product and the output um, at Disney. And so he will absolutely make, you know, Star Wars a, a priority, I have to imagine. Um, and, you know, the other big thing is that he's only signed for a two-year contract. Now, you know, famous last words, he's uh, unretired before, <laughs> clearly. Um, but uh, he will need to start really thinking about who can be the successor to lead Disney into its next chapter. And like for real this time, not JPEG. You know, <laughs> yeah. he's not getting any younger and he will need to find the right person to, you know, hand over the keys to the Magic Kingdom. So uh, it will probably take some work. Uh, those I've talked to so far don't feel like there's an obvious, uh, you know, person in line waiting for the job. So he might really have to, to work to develop uh, the right candidate over the next couple of years. And then he'll run for president, right? Right. Maybe. I mean, <laughs> everyone's hoping, but again, he's not getting any younger. I, I do wonder if that opportunity has passed him by. 
Well, you know, I keep seeing the news about him saying that he's 71 and coming back and while also saying Joe Biden is now 80. So look, anything is possible in your 70s and beyond. So let's not let's not write anything out. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Natalie, for explaining this to me, as always. Um, in February, when there's some huge new Disney shakeup, we will obviously bring you back to explain it once again. Of course. Happy to come on anytime. So before we head off for our Thanksgiving weekends and a few days off, hopefully, um, we are putting together an awards insider on VanityFair.com, kind of a guide to where you can watch awards contenders and how. Um, And Richard, you've already talked about how your mom watched Tar at home. Are you going to try to show your parents anything or take them to the theaters while you're with them for Thanksgiving? I'm not going to try to show them things. I am going to show them things because I have a lot to watch before my top 10 of the year list is due the week after Thanksgiving. Um, I think top of the list is Goodnight Oppie, which is going to be on Amazon at the end of this week. Um, I love that movie. You should watch it. It's delightful. My mom is a scientist who used to contract with NASA years ago. And so like she's really interested in the space program. and, And so that seems like a perfect sell for her. My dad, I think I'm I'm hoping will like all the beauty and the bloodshed, which I still haven't seen, embarrassingly. Um, so I'm excited for that. And and yeah, like I don't know, I, I, there are some foreign titles, but like they're uh, looking at this list that you guys are putting, you David, Rebecca, Katie are putting together for you know where to watch these awards contenders. Yes, I grumble, grumble about streaming, but like, man, there's a lot of good stuff to watch if your family doesn't want to go out, you know, mm-hmm. or if it's too, you know, you have kids, it's too, too much money, like whatever reason, um, there's, there's a good selection at home. Maybe yeah, I'll I'd- finally watch RRR. I know. I was like, I was just looking at RRR as, you know, it's on Netflix. I think it's in the dubbed version on Netflix. If you want yeah. to see it in the original um, language, you need to go otherwise. But still, I'd like to witness that spectacle. Nope is on Peacock. I still haven't seen Nope, embarrassingly. So that might be high on my list, though I don't know how my family will react to it. Um, also, The Northman's on Peacock, talking about movies that, like, didn't necessarily make a ton when they opened, but has, like, kind of, like, kept chugging along. I think a lot of people rented it. Uh, that's very much worth catching up with. Um, what's on your list, Rebecca? Well, I've been trying to get my parents to watch everything everywhere for a month, so I'm hoping <laughs> to too. sit down and <laughs> to watch that with them. Um, it's hard to pitch to parents. I've discovered. I'm like, no, I know. You'll like I'm like, this movie. I'm like, it's really weird. I think if I'm sitting with them and I can be like, no, no, hold on, don't worry. Maybe they'll stick with it more. Yeah. Yeah, but I I would like to go to a theater. I mean, I loved Devotion, and I feel like that would be a really mm-hmm. cool movie to see with your parents or your family, and and so I'm hopefully would like to see that. And um, I don't know, maybe Banshees also, which is also currently in theaters. I think they would like that one as well. So I I mean, I mean you know, my parents, um, I mean my family, sort of. I feel like you guys probably have this too, where you're you're the ones who have to recommend movies over uh, oh, yeah. holiday visits because we've seen everything. So I'm, I'm still curating my choices at the moment. Devotion seems like a good bet for a lot of different people. Like it probably, I would, th- I haven't seen it yet either, but I, th- it probably checks a lot of boxes. It's like exciting. Yes. There are like hot yes. guys in it. Like it's a yep. p- war period piece. Like I know my dad would want to see that, you know, like, um, and it, it should be entertaining, you know? Yes, um, exactly. Which, yeah, so I think actually if, if my family does go out to the theater, we'll do Devotion. And don't forget that the Glass Onion one-week release is coming up in just in time for this exact purpose. Like, if you're trying to figure out something everyone will want to see, it's kind of hard to do better than that, I would think. I'm really—actually, we're not going to get real box office numbers for it, are we? Because it's like a— nope. That's really frustrating. <laughs> I know we talk about this in different ways every week, but 
you know, that's this such a crowd pleaser movie. I really hope people go see that in theaters. It's such a, you know, I think it would play well at home and we'll find that out around Christmas, but uh, people should go see that in theaters. And if also if people go see it in theaters and it does really well, maybe some st- streaming services are like, there might be some value in putting things in theaters for a month or so, you know? You know? Um, <laughs> it's just, it's wild. Like I watched Smile, the horror movie that was a huge hit that's already on Paramount Plus, you know, like, I don't know. I, I just think that, you know, I would I would love if Glass Onion did really well and that made Netflix and other streamers think like there is definite value in doing the theatrical. Yeah. Um, and speaking of crowd pleasers, you can watch at home. The Woman King will be uh, rentable as of uh, this week. So that's a good one that, you know, you should see in theaters if you can't get people to leave the house. Um, and then Top Gun Maverick is going to save being on Paramount Plus until December 22nd. So that sounds like oh, a boy. Christmas plan for, you know, the people who have Paramount Plus. I'm one of them. So I would watch that there. Um, guys, this makes me really excited about movie going. There's so much good stuff to see. I don't know what's wrong with people who are not going to see it, but... Um, the options are great. And then there's still all this stuff, like The Whale, Women Talking, Babylon, uh, that isn't even out yet. Yeah, I mean, uh, listeners should really brace themselves. for um, Starting, I think, right after the holiday, I'm only going to be talking about Empire of Light from now till <laughs> March. So I apologies in advance. You've been waiting. You've been waiting <laughs> for months. Very patiently, humbly. Yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while, you just mumble it in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the the real, I guess Tar still really has the discourse drama crown for this season so far. Just, you know, the amount of jokes about Lydia Tar being a real person alone. Um, but maybe Empire of Light is going to come around because, uh, Richard, I know you know that people have strong feelings about that mm-hmm. one if you say that you like it. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend who said, I haven't seen it yet, but it's my number one of the year. And I said, please, please, please manage expectations <laughs> that, I, that, that I have single-handedly built up for you. <laughs> Look at what you've done. That does it for today's show. Happy Thanksgiving to those of you celebrating. We'll be back next week. Uh, Find us at VanityFair.com. Find our guide to what to watch over Thanksgiving weekend. Um, And find us on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of what happened right after I dropped my Empire of Light review goes to Katie Rich. All of Britain fell to its knees. (laughs) 